I subscribe to a dance app where I take a whole host of virtual dance classes and dance type workouts. And at the beginning of some of these classes, the instructors often prompt me to, hey, set your watch so you know how many calories you're burning. And I wonder what you think of that. Is it unsurprising, standard, maybe helpful? This is what I think. What for? Will knowing how many calories that I've so-called burnt mean I'm more likely to feel satisfied from moving my body? Does it make the movement more worthwhile? What will knowing this number help me with? Never mind its accuracy or not. Is it because this number will help me determine how much food I'm allowed to eat or how much more movement needs to happen to burn off what I've already eaten? Is it that movement could only happen in order to manipulate my weight? Is it that we can only ever assess anything that goes on for us with an external data point? I also think diet culture is the worst and I despise it. So other than that, though, there are a lot of questions. And in this episode, we're going to cover the role of fitness trackers in fitness and health, including, and no spoilers here because it's in the name of the episode, why 10,000 steps is garbage. To cover this, including what the research has to say about it all, I have the privilege of being joined by Emma Green, who in her own words is an anti-diet coach and science nerd. What a brilliant combo. Emma is a freelance writer and editor covering the health and well-being space. She also holds a PhD in health psychology and is a certified personal trainer. I'm Nadia Felsch, nutritionist and intuitive eating counsellor. In this podcast, we explore the practical aspects of leaving the diet mentality behind and finding your own food and body freedom. All right, 10,000 steps a day. Why that number? Surely there's incredible data behind it. And where did the concept even come from as a fitness goal? That's what Emma and I discussed first up. Now, a note about the audio quality throughout our interview, it is not ideal, I know, but that's also the reality of recording from across the other side of the globe. I also feel really confident that it's worth persevering uh, to hear our chat all the same. Yeah, so it's interesting. It goes back to um, like 1964, actually, when um, Tokyo were hosting the Olympics, actually, um, they are, um, this year, and at the time, um, they just thought, okay, so, you know, we're hosting, you know, this big event. Actually, maybe we should think about the kind of physical activity of, like, the general population. And for some reason, they decided that the way to do that was going to be through steps. And a company decided, actually, let's produce a way of tracking steps. So, like, a pedometer, which is a basic uh, step tracker. Um, and largely, they just called the number 10,000 from nowhere. They just decided that sounded like a nice a nice number. And the name they gave um, for the pedometer was like 10,000 steps in like Japanese. Um, so kind of right from its onset, it was this arbitrary number, but already immediately linked with a device to actually track it. Um, and then over time, what happened is some researchers thought, okay, let's, have a test of this and see what happens. And there were some studies and, you know, people can find them that show that, like, say, 10,000 steps is better than, say, you know, 2,000 for certain health outcomes. But the trouble is, is a lot of research didn't 
actually look at anything between those two numbers. So when, you know, more recent research has sort of looked at all the things in between that actually are important because, again, 10,000, yes, might have some benefits you would expect compared to someone that isn't, you know, doing a sort of very low amount. But actually, like, no one has established 10,000 as the best. Um, It's really just something that has, I think, caught on because it is like this memorable number um, and a lot of the sort of fitness trackers now all have that as the kind of like default goal you know and so people think it's something that they should be aspiring to achieve um despite it yeah being, being arbitrary really Okay, and yet this arbitrary or rather quite bullshit figure, to be honest, is one which we're all so familiar with that we might actually live our day seeking out and also one which huge players like Apple and Samsung use as a default within their wearables like fitness trackers. So how did that happen? How is it that we all became so familiar with and so focused on taking 10,000 steps a day? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think it's, really with with fitness trackers because it's I guess a way of kind of selling them and 10,000 steps is generally higher than most people would do in a day like most on average most people doing about half that about 5,000 steps a day which is actually still like relatively active right um but I think the thing is with a a fitness tracker they can say hey you're not taking enough steps right you should be going for this number it's a lot easier to sell people on a, a tracker if you're telling them that they're not getting enough. So I think that's the, the other um, thing that has cemented this 10,000 goal. It's slightly above what most people are getting. Um, so it's, I guess, easier to sell that as a, a sort of, this is something you need to increase your um, your kind of fitness, fitness levels. Um, and I think, you know, even some kind of like the like World Health Organization and similar um, sort of health bodies have even kind of like in, endorsed sort of the um, sort of 10,000 thing as well in, in certain, you know, campaigns and instances, which is, I think, has, um, you know, added to it being really cemented as this kind of like global, <laughs> global goal. Um, just, yeah, despite actually starting, like you say, in Japan from one technology company that just decided that 10,000 was sort of a, you know, a, a good goal for them to sell a, a tracker, really. Um, right. So it, it is incredible, I think, how how cemented it, it, has, it has become, really, despite the the science. Really, the science came after the the establishment of, of the figure of ten thousand, rather than actually it being, you know, derived from from science yeah, informing um, the product. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> so there's really like, I guess, elements of, of almost aspirational lifestyle, which is in this kind mm. of commercially, I guess, commercial presence of this number is, is really following this pattern. So that's its origins, which let's be honest, are vague to say the least, considering the impact that I've seen this goal have on clients, but more on that in a moment. Firstly, I was curious what the research has to say if someone, instead of walking 10,000 steps a day, actually walks 5,000 steps a day, maybe two and a half thousand. Yeah, so studies initially were um, comparing this kind of 10,000 number to 
I sort of fairly lowest number, like something like 2,000, and found that, you know, generally the 10,000 provided more health benefits in terms of things like reduced risk of, you know, heart disease, diabetes, the, the kinds of things that they tend to look at in these sort of health interventions. But then researchers thought, well, actually, what, like, what about the in-between, right? What about, the, you know, because most people, like I said, are, are taking about an average of 5,000 steps a day. What if we, if we look at that? And what kind of research is shown is you, you do get a benefit of more steps. So on average, an increase of like 2,000 steps will provide some significant health benefits, but only up to the level of around 7,500 um, steps. After that, you're kind of leveling off. So you're not actually getting any, any further benefits there. And I'm not aware of research that's looked at very high amounts, but I that you would expect actually very high amounts would potentially get some um, health health detriments and hopefully be like reassuring for people right that actually you don't need to be doing that many steps and anything below that you're still getting benefits it's not a case of like you have to hit this or don't even bother it's you're, you're getting benefits and actually you get the most benefits from with the kind of the, the fewer you're doing to start with if that makes sense and then it's a kind of you know diminishing return I invite you to pause this episode right now, screenshot your phone and share what you're loving about it on your Instagram stories. Brag away. Share with your friends that you're working on your relationship to food and fighting diet culture so we can build this stronger community together. When we're talking fitness trackers and especially the idea of a daily step goal, it's imperative that we also talk about accuracy. You know, I remember when I was a runner that I wore a heart rate monitor as part of my training to assess what heart rate I was in, you know, the different zones during the different types of trainings that I did, but also to track my cardio fitness improvements. That was important at the time. And I also remember relying on that watch really heavily during my period living with disordered eating and orthorexia so that I knew, or I thought I knew, how many calories I burned through my workouts in order to determine how much I could eat. I know I did then, and maybe you do too, feel that these trackers provide us objective data that we can rely on, as in they're reliable. It's not up to opinion. It's it's fact. And including the prompt from my virtual dance classes telling me, you know, turn your watch on so I know how much I've apparently burnt. I asked Emma about the accuracy of trackers, and she also shared fascinating insights into some of the research methods that have been utilised so far in this space and the issues with that. I think it's also worth noting that no tracker is actually 100% accurate, and there are a number of studies that have looked at them, and for steps, they tend to be very inaccurate. Um, They're most accurate for heart rate, which you kind of, I guess, expect. Depending on where they're where they're worn, um, risk not so much. But if you also wear like a chest strap and things, they can be slightly more accurate. But steps, they're actually very inaccurate. They will typically count things that aren't steps, um, essentially like as as steps. So if you move your arm or whatever, it will count it will count as step. Um, equally, like you know, it it might not count all of the you know steps that you do. In a day, so they're, they're and they you don't get a lot of consistency between different trackers. So they've even done studies where they've got people to wear like all the trackers <laughs> on their arm, 
and they all get completely different readings. So I think that that's the other thing as well. They're not, despite what they sort of might tell you about accuracy, um, really giving you numbers that that um, are necessarily a meaningful representation of your activity levels anyway. Um, which you know I think contributes to people you know feeling more more negatively because they're very much kind of sold as like this is you know like this is data right this is scientific this is objective you know we'll put it in a graph for you or you know or, or this kind of stuff and and it, it's really it's really not and what makes it tricky to study is that um unsurprisingly a lot of the sort of manufacturers these fitness trackers want to reveal their algorithms so we don't actually know exactly which data points they're combining to give the, the readings that they do, which also makes it quite difficult for researchers to actually um, assess them as well. Um, but I think that's also worth, worth noting for, for people as well, that they're, really, they're really not accurate. And I think the, the other thing is that um, when it comes to kind of like the calorie count, which most, most of them do provide, um, they also tend to, well, tend to be inaccurate, but they also all tend to under-report. And so that's also particularly concerning because if people are using them, as sadly they often are, to determine then how much they're eating, um, I mean, we know in general that calorie counting is, is a, you know, a big kind of predictor of, of further disordered eating and, um, you know, disordered, uh, you know, um, eating disorders in itself. But they're also going to be under-eating generally if they are using that is their is their metric, um, which I think is, is is really worrying, and ironically isn't going to help their fitness either, right? Having you know enough food is hugely important for all sorts of reasons, but definitely if you are you know wanting to kind of be active and you know perhaps work on a particular aspect of fitness, you really need you know enough food to be able to, to do that. When I think about 10,000 steps a day, I think of a client from years ago who shared with me that she felt guilty for not hitting her daily step goal, that it would make her worried enough to keep walking around no matter how she actually felt. In fact, how she felt was never part of her consideration. The watch, the external data was what felt compelling to her. And this goal not only had her preoccupied, though it also played a really pivotal role in her food choices and how she felt about herself. And research findings back this clinical experience. A 2017 study had 84 adolescents aged 13 to 14 wearing the Fitbit product for eight weeks. The findings were that there was a short-term increase in motivation. However, it was through feelings of competition, of guilt, and internal pressure. It wasn't an intrinsic desire or connection to their body. It wasn't for pleasure or health benefits. It was the idea that they wouldn't do what the watch told them to do, what it recommended, and also what their peers were doing. And who can't relate to that? So whilst there's reports, yes, of motivation increasing in tracker usage, you know, if we use a fitness tracker, that hasn't shown to transfer across to long-term behavior change, especially if the tracker isn't worn. And I want you to keep that in mind. And that actually, that idea is parallel to dieting in order to be healthy, where, you know, if we are following this external plan that, that we've maybe being told is so-called healthy eating, that we have to follow this to be healthy, 
we're on a diet, we're not more inclined to keep at that once the plan is finished, once it's gone. And we're also not motivated from ourselves, from within to do it in the first place. And our why matters. Also reducing the enjoyment of activity is big and we shouldn't gloss over that. That's also reflected in the research where step goals and fitness trackers actually can reduce our enjoyment of movement, making it feel really like a lot of work and not a lot of fun. This actually extends to tracking, you know, in all kinds of external factors. So calories that we've burnt, steps we've taken, even heart rate to an extent as well. And also throw in the aspect of inaccuracy of these figures too, because what happens if you don't meet the goals? Going back to my dance class, is it not worthwhile if you don't hit that goal? So actually then you're less likely also to enjoy it, to stay motivated, to stay connected, to progress, to do the movement you like, that's very important, to even try new things. And there's another consequence of fitness trackers in general that my earlier client story picked up on, the role that they play in exacerbating disordered eating and exercise behaviors. And that's an area that I asked Emma about. Again, going back to these trackers, they're kind of set up in this way that like, oh, you hit the goal or you don't, you know, you Mm -hmm. like close the ring or you don't, or you Mm -hmm. get your tick or you don't. They're not really set up to encourage, you know, people to you know, pursue a kind of like target, whatever that would be like, right, you know, right for them. It's always like more, more, more hit this. And if you don't, that's a failure. Yeah. So, I mean, that is kind of where we start to see these issues really is when people aren't hitting these goals, right? So they love initially, sometimes people report, oh yeah, I feel really motivated to hit my target. Um, And people do also, interestingly enough, report kind of increased like perceived health. They feel like they're healthier. Which I guess is some of the feedback that they may be getting from their tracker. Um, but I mean, actually, I mean, usage in general of fitness trackers is already associated with more like disordered eating and exercise behaviors anyway, which you kind of expect. And again, associated, it probably goes in both directions, right? Probably people that already have some disordered eating and exercise are more drawn to trackers, right? But also, if you have a predisposition and then you get a tracker, it's probably going to exacerbate some of those things that already sort of struggling with because it is, you know, like saying sort of binary um, kind of idea and this sort of black and white, you know, this good, bad, you know, failing or, or, you know, succeeding, that kind of mentality that often feeds into kind of, you know, disordered eating and um, eating disorders as well. But yeah, when people sort of miss their um, targets, um, generally they report feelings of like guilt. Um, you know, and also are more likely to engage in kind of like compensatory behaviors. So things like, you know, reducing food um, and things like that, or trying to like, you know, increase perhaps like exercise the next day or, you know, things that they're trying to kind of offset having not hit their target on a particular day. Um, So that is where it, it does become particularly kind of problematic. And a lot of the times, people aren't able to hit these targets because, you know, the way that some of these devices are set up, they're kind of encouraging you to do more and more over time. So sometimes they're not even saying like, oh, hit this every day. They're saying, oh, actually, you know, do yesterday, do last month, do this. So it's kind of, they're always encouraging this upward trajectory. And that may or may not fit in with an individual's, you know, lifestyle and and also the activities they enjoy, right? I mean, step, yes, if you walk or run or whatever, 
But I mean, what if you like yoga? What if you like swimming? What if you like cycling? What if you like yoga? None of those give you steps, right? And they all provide loads of, you know, kind of health benefits. And if you enjoy them, then absolutely. Like, you you know, you want to be doing exercise that you enjoy, not exercise to get you steps, right? You know, um, so I think that's, that's the other kind of aspect as well as it kind of, in a way, to hit these targets, it gives you a very narrow range of activities in order to, to achieve them as, as well, which I think, you know, isn't really helpful in terms of people tuning into, you know, like what feels good for them, what what do they enjoy, um, you know, rather than just doing what they need to do to kind of hit this, this target. So say that you're all jived, you've got this new fitness tracker, you're excited to get fit, and one day you don't hit your fitness tracker step goal. You feel guilty. You you compensate in some way. Maybe it's eating less for dinner, even though you're still hungry. Maybe it's walking extra steps tomorrow, even if your body is tired. As Emma and I discuss, fitness trackers are not necessary. And if you're in recovery from an eating disorder, diet culture, and chronic dieting, fitness trackers are not a tool that I would recommend. You need to be okay with ignoring the data, with being okay if your watch dies mid-activity. You need to be not reliant on it. You need to be in a positive place with your body first. And I love how Emma talks about this and likens the process to intuitive eating. Certainly not for anyone that isn't eating a good recovery or has Mm -hmm. that as a history because Mm. I think the way that they're designed, they're designed to sort of like, you know, encourage maximum engagement, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's very difficult to actually have a kind of healthy relationship with them because they're often, you know, buzzing at you to tell you to move or they're, you know, encouraging you to share your stats and you know, this kind of thing. So I think they're they're in a way designed um to I guess facilitate a sort of reliance on them. Um, you know, which again I think if you're in you can be good at recovery. Um, particularly you know or just have a history of, of dieting you really kind of want to be getting away from this reliance on and any kind of external cues right which which these are um and I mean I think there is maybe a place for them in some instances if you have a particular maybe performance goal you want to run a race or something like that but I think you have to have done a lot of groundwork to be able to get to a place where that would be appropriate for you I see a bit of a parallel like with um, the kind of tenth principle of intuitive eating, right, which is honor your health with gentle nutrition. The reason that lasts, right, is because you have to do so much work before you can get to a place where you're making that decision from a genuine genuine place of I want to feel good, not I'm doing this because I hope that, um, you know, I will lose weight or that, you know, uh, to be good or, or something, you know, inverted commas. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's similar with, with fitness trackers. I think initially, I, I think they can be really, um, if you're, you know, in the early stages of trying to build a healthier relationship with, you know, food and, and exercise in your body, I think they are sort of detrimental to that. And I think maybe then there's a place for them way down the line. But even then, I think there are ways around it. Like, you know, I think you can use things like there's something called like rate of perceived exertion, um, like where you would sort of, um, on a scale of obviously one to ten of how difficult an exercise is. So you could, you know, if you're wanting to do something at a particular intensity level, you know, instead of using heart rate on your tracker, you could be like, okay, I'll do an eight out of ten, things like that. You know, if you're doing 
intervals, right? You don't have to do that by looking at your watch. You could do that if you're running outside between like landmarks, right? You can be like, I'll run fast to that one and then I'll go a bit slower. So there are always ways around it. So I don't think they're necessary for anyone, but they may be useful for some people, but again, only in very, very specific circumstances because I just think the the risk just isn't isn't worth it for for a lot of people. Um, and again, like like you're saying, with, with the lack of accuracy of them as well, I kind of think, and and they're quite expensive as well, a lot of them. So I just don't see the the payoff really um, mm-hmm. for them. And you know, I think if people are in a place where they feel like they really need a tracker, I think actually that's a really good indication that you need to work on your relationship with exercise and you know see a kind of you know sort of professional um because no one should feel like they have a reliance on a tracker even if you're using one i you know i think you need to be able to be okay with ignoring the data sometimes you need to be okay if it um if you're in the middle of a workout and your watch dies you still you know can carry on with with what you want to do um you know, you need to be, I think, in a yeah, a really solid place to be able to use them in a in a healthy way. Fitness trackers are not required in order to be fit. I want to make that really clear. And also, fitness is not a moral obligation. If you do have access to professional support in this space, I highly recommend seeking it out. You deserve to have a positive and enjoyable relationship with movement and your body if you choose to. 10,000 steps has zero to do with making that happen. For the research links and notes from today's exploration, including more on how to find Emma and her work, head to my website, nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the show, head to my Food and Body Freedom community on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. And now my ask of you. I don't want you to just be a passive listener of this podcast. I want you to actually change your life with the considerable work that I put into this show. And you can actively support this work by one, subscribing to the podcast, rating and reviewing it. And if you're not sure what to write in your review, maybe share a win as you're leaving diet culture behind, or maybe just share your favorite episode and why. The second thing you can do, if you took anything, something away from this episode and found it valuable, share that. Tell your friends and family about this podcast. Share it on social media. The third thing that you can do is put put the invitations that I offer, the reflections, the prompts, put them into practice in your real life. Do the work and start discovering. Your support helps this work become bigger and more normal. I appreciate you and I thank you for joining me. See you next time. If you'd like to get in touch with me, learn about my current group program offerings and client availability, the best way to do that is via my website, www.nadiafelsch.com. You'll also find my Facebook group, Food and Body Freedom, and on Instagram and TikTok, my handle is at Nadia Felsch.